0: Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. I sat down with Paul Fisher to talk about his biography, The Grand Affair, John Singer Sargent in His World, published by FSG in November 2022. We recorded our interview at the annual bioconference in New York City on May 20th. Paul Fisher, welcome to the podcast. Who is John Singer Sargent?
1: John Singer Sargent is a fantastic American, international painter who many people love and adore. Whenever I speak about Sargent, I ask how many people are, you know, secret Sargent, arcane fans, and many people, their hands shoot up. It's amazing how many people love Sargent secretly or in public.
0: I had never heard his name, but I have seen his work, which I found to be very fascinating. His most famous work is Madame X, as far as I know.
1: Which is right here in New York. You can go visit (laughs) it at the Met.
0: So tell me about this painting and why it's so relevant to his career.
1: Madame X is a fantastic painting that I go visit every time I'm in New York and um, it it intrigues a lot of people. A lot of people have heard rumors about it and like many a Sargent painting, it has this kind of deep set of secrets and it it suggests somebody that you maybe have met before or you'd like to know that you'd like to know a lot more about. Um, Madame X has a huge backstory. When I first started my project, I was not going to write very much about Madame X. I ended up writing three or four chapters just because there's so much to say about this particular painting and all that it says about Sargent's view on men, on women, on life, on sex, the whole bundle.
0: Well, you said something interesting about there's a lot of secrets involved with this painting, and that seems like a metaphor for his life. Yes. He was a homosexual.
1: Well, I mean, this is what's tricky about dealing with Sargent. I'm a queer historian who deals with all this kind of queer history, and the the labels that are created at the time and now are often insufficient to describe people's complexities vis-a-vis gender and sexuality, and that's the beauty of Sargent. Uh, There are certainly people who have described him as gay, or I I tend to call him queer because I talk about his sexual unconventionality, his gender unconventionality in more nuanced ways, and also use a lot of the terms, from his time to try to situate him in this fantastic, dazzling world of Paris art studios and in in New York City and um, the whole international art world in which he lived.
0: So what are the ethics about writing about somebody's sexuality, given the times that we're living in, and how open we can be today as opposed to then?
1: I, again, am a queer historian, and one of the things that I deal with a lot is sort of outing people, you know. And whether it's a contemporary person or a historical person, you sort of have to think about how would that person feel about it. You want to have a lot of accuracy, you want to have a lot of dignity for the figure, but what I think is also important here is the question of social justice both for contemporary people and for people historically. Sargent did not want to identify himself as what we would now think of as queer, but on the other hand, one of the reasons he didn't want to do that is because of the huge social injustices of his time. And what what I try to do too is say why that matters and why it, it makes Sargent a more interesting ar- artist to look at today.
0: Well, that answers my question of why should we care about him today?
1: For me, that's the gender and sexuality package. The, the fact that he had interesting ways of relating to both men and women that I think are very modern, that are very um, relevant to people today, is, is one of the reasons why there are all those Sargent fans out there, the people who see in the paintings very complex representations of of human beings. And one of the things that I like to say is that Sargent's a portraitist. And if you think about what a portrait is, a portrait is a negotiation among an artist, a sitter, sometimes a patron, and an audience, both the audiences at Sargent's time and audiences more recently. And so it's a collaborative piece. And so you know, when he's representing all these people, he's representing a huge sort of swath of different kinds of people and different approaches to life.
0: He's referred to as an American painter, yet he hadn't been to the United States until he was an adult. Why is he referred to as an American?
1: That's a great question, too, because as you say, he never even visited the United States until he was was fully 20 years old in 1876. His parents were both Americans who had been living in Europe. when He he was born in Florence. He grew up speaking French and Italian um, pretty fluently. Uh, People in Europe were amazed by that. At the same time, he was nurtured in these strange little American enclaves in European cities, which existed a lot in the 19th century. Um, Henry James used to complain about how he could go to Rome without having to go to a lot of Cambridge Bunfights, that is, people from Cambridge, Massachusetts, who would invite you over for tea. And so Sargent spoke with an American accent. He had been raised around Americans. There they they were peculiar kinds of Americans who had been living abroad, but another thing to know about this is these are not necessarily rich, snooty Americans. There were some of them. It was cheaper to live kind of a, a divey life in Europe because it was half the cost of living in the United States in the 19th century.
0: I just learned something.
1: It's, it's amazing to me. And if that were only true now that you could go, I mean, there are countries that are cheaper than the U.S., but, but Europe was the cheap option in those days.
0: Let's come back to Madame X for a second. After this scandalous first showing of his most famous painting, Madame X, he made some pretty obvious changes to the painting. Can you tell me about why he did that and what those changes were?
1: What, what you're referring to is the famous fallen strap. Which does which is not there in the in the the painting as you would look at it at the Met. And there's only one photographic image of how it looked with the strap down. And so it's always interesting to look at that photographic image because you can see a whole different kind of painting where it looks like Madame X is kind of climbing out of her dress. Um, So you can see much more how it was scandalous. Because he got such a bruising reception at the salon, the the big Paris art exhibition, he repainted the strap and um, he kept the the painting kind of quietly in his studio. He was... um, pretty much shattered by the whole experience. At the same time, it's what really made his name, and a lot of people think it's his very best painting.
0: Sure, but what happened to the woman that he painted, his model?
1: Virginie Gautreau, who was a very interesting woman. She was uh, a Louisiana Creole, a white Creole from Louisiana, Um, so she was an American in a way, and she'd been living in Paris, married to a banker, and she was famous for adultery. She had many adulterous affairs, and that was one of the reasons why climbing out of her uh, dress was a little suspect.
0: You wrote a biography called House of Wits on the James family. How did you work on this biography influence your work on John Singer Sargent?
1: Both Sargent and James, uh, they, they knew each other and um, so I was kind of r- discovering Sargent through James when I was working on that book. It's about the whole James family, Alice James and William James as well. So this is the period that I work on and the kind of in- fascinating uh, European-bound uh, Americans that I've, I've worked on for a long time. Another thing that the, the books have in common is they're both kind of uh, interrogations of queer history because Alice James was probably what we would now think of as a lesbian, and and Henry James was famously sexually unconventional as well. He may never have had sex with anybody, but we think he was interested in men. So, you know, this is part of kind of a reclamation reclamation of some queer history that I've been doing.
0: You include so many sketches and photos and Sargent's artwork throughout this biography. How did you decide what to include throughout the pages of the book?
1: Well, a- as you say, this has a lot of illustrations for a biography, 60, which was very nice of my publisher to allow, um, and it's partly because the, the images are so important to telling the story. I do a lot of interpretation of paintings and sketches. When I worked on James, here's another James um, Sargent comparison, there were some 10,000 letters to read. James just said a lot in his letters. There are many fewer letters by Sargent, and they're very laconic, and they're hard to read. So you spend a whole afternoon in an archive reading a letter, and you find out, yes, I'll be to lunch at 1 p.m. So a lot of Sargent's inner life is really buried in the images and not, not, sometimes not so buried in the images. And so that's why they're so interesting and important. I would like to have included, you know, 300 images. I, you know, like many Sargent fans, I think that every image has a lot of stuff in it. There are many more images that I discuss. I chose ones that seemed especially key to telling the hidden story and the, the story of secrets
0: So your last book was a group biography on the James family. Can you speak to the challenges of writing a biography of one person versus a group?
1: Well, there are different things about that. I mean, I really did have a lot of attention, especially to the three James children I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, William James, Henry James and Alice James, so there was more of a variety. But my book on Sargent, though it's really focused intensely on Sargent, deals a lot with his family. My final chapter is about his wonderful sisters and what they did with his legacy. Uh, This is Emily and uh, Violet's Sargent. So there's quite a bit of Sargent's family that's there too. Also my Sargent book has the subtitle, In His World, John Singer Sargent, In His World.
0: Right, so it's like a cultural biography. So it's a cultural
1: biography, so there's Mm -hmm. a lot there. so it, in a way, it's a group biography. There's, there's characters that keep coming back into it, some of his models and, and artists' friends, and so especially all the women he knew in his life. I love writing about the women that, that, that Sargent painted and knew, um, often patrons and confidants and models for Sargent in the boldness he wanted to have in his life.
0: So when it came to tackling the second biography, what lessons did you learn from writing the first book?
1: there are always lessons learned in any book you publish in mm-hmm. any biography. and and you know biography, um, some people think it's a a story of telling a sort of cr- what they call a cradle to grave sort of story. and that's more or less the the structure that I used in both of my books, but it's so much more than that is telling the essential stories if you're if you're learning how to tell essential stories, I mean you can't have too much practice and and you know both books were were pretty. Effort-intensive, uh, research-intensive works that, that really put me through my paces and, and went through a, a million uh, revisions. I mean, my, my students who tend to produce produce overnight papers are, are always shocked when I hear when when they hear how many times I have you know revised a book. And that's always the learning process, and also bringing out the story and the essential parts of the book.
0: So, how long did it
1: take you to write this one? About ten years.
0: Oh, wow! Yeah. And the first one.
1: Uh, c- pretty close on that too, six to eight, maybe. So yeah, plus all the other stuff I'd done previously. So it's, it's a lot of work that goes into it. You notice with both books that they have very substantial notes se- sections, which are, are all about the kind of background stuff that you do. And it's not all grunt work. When you go to to archives and museums and other places, you find all kinds of very moving bits and pieces. For example, I was recently, a few years ago, involved in a a group that's doing a big uh, exhibition of Sargent in Boston in the fall on on Sargent and fashion. And we had a meeting at the Tate Gallery in in London, the Tate Britain Gallery. And one of the things that we saw there was Sargent's paint set. They had his paint set. Uh, And to, to, after having worked so much on Sargent, to sort of get to look at one of the last palettes he ever used in his life and what paints were on there was this very moving experience of direct connection to a historical person.
0: Somebody who's been dead for 100 years, yeah. You're able to be in the room with their things. And
1: you really kind of want that sort of live, live connection. And I mean, with Sargent, you can get that with a lot of his paintings too, because you can still see the texture of the paint on the canvas. You can sort of see where the brush strokes would have happened. I'm not strictly speaking an art historian, but one of the things that I really trained myself to do was to, to look at all that stuff as, as records of the sort of intimate activities of this live person who created these beautiful objects.
0: His sisters really did a service. After he died, they were responsible for much of his legacy. To what extent have you interviewed the descendants of of them?
1: Well, well, it's interesting. One of the main people who works on Sargent is a, is a guy called Richard Ormond, who's a descendant of Violet Sargent, and he has been one of the people who's been instrumental in bringing back Sargent's legacy since uh, the, about the 1980s. One thing to know about Sargent uh, as a painter is that he was very well known and, and regarded in his lifetime, but then his reputation went through a long eclipse, and it was sort of brought back in the nineteen nineteen eighties. And, and Richard Ormond's one of the people who who has done that and has been very generous in sharing some, some things that weren't already in, in archives. I, I've met him a couple of times. He's a very uh, interesting guy. And it's mostly through the kind of documents he's been able to provide. He donated a whole bunch of documents to the Museum of Fine Arts in, while I was working on this that were very instrumental to filling out the picture.
0: I find it fascinating that Sargent did not necessarily, like he didn't, he didn't really care about many of his little paintings that he would do, let's say, in the Alps. I wonder how many little paintings of Sargent's there are out there, because he was so prolific, yeah. Yeah. right? So yes, there are, many of his pieces are in museums, but I wonder how many personal pieces are out there that people don't even know are John Singer Sargent or, you know, worth something. I that came up to me in in reading this book.
1: It's a real possibility. One of the things I talk about a lot in the book is the the big divide between his public and private work, his sort of well-known public work, and the private work that has come to light partly through archives, partly through stuff in people's attics over many decades. And I I think you're right that stuff keeps coming up all the time. I mean, the people who have written the catalogue raisonné, the whole uh, collected works of Sargent, always add appendices of things that have come up you know, since that time. He was famously kind of careless about pieces. He was also a generous friend that gave lots of people lots of pieces. And some of them are, I, I've also, since writing the book, heard from a lot of sort of private owners of, of Sargent pieces. Most of them are already known, but, but they're people who have a kind of personal relationship with these pieces that they've, they've inherited or they found. And it's a fascinating part of, of how we can sort of think of an artist and the many traces that an artist leaves behind.
0: So, towards the end of his life, Sargent hired Thomas McKellar to model for him. Tell me about this person and sort of the significance or the lasting historical significance of this person.
1: This is a piece of the book I'm really proud of, and I'm also proud to have contributed to a wonderful exhibition catalog from the Gardner Museum in 2020 called Boston's Apollo, which was really uncovering the history of this lost model in general, in the past, art historians weren't that interested in models. They considered models as people who were just kind of props that that, that a a genius artist would use to create certain things. Now we're much more interested in models and there's been a lot of recent interest, especially in black models. Um, There was a wonderful show about Called posing modernity um, uh, here in New York and in Paris. That was about sort of black models and, and French impressionist art and how important black models were. So this was recovering part of this. This is some research that I had done before and that I th- that I amply lay out in my book too. And one of the things that's really hard to do is to claim a historical personage. Uh, you know, this this black model Thomas McKeller who lived in Boston. And um, people weren't interested in his story. I I did a lot of research. Um, The the essay that I wrote for this uh, exhibition was the first ever biography of this guy. And we put together all kinds of stuff from from public records to uh, reminiscences by family members to really try to reconstruct an idea of, of, of this man and, and also to figure out kind of why he would be so important to Sargent. He was an excellent model and paradoxically Sargent used him mostly to create sort of white figures, white mythological figures for the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. So in a way he erased black bodies. At the same time he was one of the few artists of his time who even noticed black few white artists of his time who even noticed black people. So it's, it's like many things with Sargent, it's a complicated story.
0: Yeah, you really went out of your way to find out who these models were, and I really appreciated that about this book. It was fascinating.
1: The models are often very interesting people who have their their own stories to tell, and, and I think tell us a lot about what artists are doing and how they're doing it and, and and about the complicated social content of these paintings.
0: For sure. What was your research process like?
1: Well, I, again, over... Many years working on this, you know. Sometimes it was very intensive. Sometimes I would have to lay it aside. I'm a college professor and, and a person with a life, so you know, you'd have to do that. Um, as as we discussed before, one of the things that that I helped me survive the the kind of intense work of this book was um, walks and runs and and you know, getting out and, and sort of airing things in my in my mind. And the time you spend in archives, it's the time you spent it spend at your computer doing revisions, but it's also how you kind of um, pump the ether for the really kind of good, big ideas that, that you're, you're wrestling with at other times. And for me, getting out and about in, in various ways, whether it's exercise, you know, seeing John Singer Sargent's paint set, these things help change the whole approach.
0: For sure. So would you say that your form of self-care is exercise?
1: Uh, certainly one of, one of many things. I also um, have a lot of intellectual interests that are not directly related. I mean, for example, when I finished my James book, which had taken a lot of time, I went to Finland, a, a, a country where Henry James had never gone. It's important to have horizons that, that both include your subject and that go beyond your subject.
0: Sargent never stayed in one place for very long. He zigzagged Europe, the United States, Turkey, Northern Africa. To what extent did you trace his travels?
1: Well, to do that completely, I mean, there are people who have done that as completely as possible, and it's dizzying. One of the bright things my editor said about this is if we represented all of those things, readers would be bewildered. Sargent was a hotel baby. He lived in hotels and and hired digs all over the the, the world. Um, He was used to sort of living in hotels. For example, I've studied a lot about what he did in Boston, and in Boston, he stayed in two of the big main hotels that are still around at Boston once, become a condo since then, the, the Vendôme, which is where he met Thomas McKellar. Um, but, but what I've tried to do, though, is talk about his most important journeys and those and the, the journeys that made a difference in his life and his painting.
0: Well, we're going to leave it right there. Thank you so much for your time. Well,
1: thanks so much, Jenny.
0: That was my conversation with Paul Fisher about his book, The Grand Affair, John Singer Sargent in His World published by FSG in November 2022. This interview was recorded at BIO's annual conference in New York City on May 20th. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music, and until next time, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week.